In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus react so strongly to Peter? Why does he round on him using such strong language? In his rebuke to Peter, Jesus uses the same words that he used during his temptation in the wilderness to banish the devil. Go away, Satan. It's the language of exorcism, and yet he speaks it to his disciple. Why does Jesus react so strongly to Peter? After all, what Peter has done seems perfectly defensible, especially if you factor in his impulsive character. No one who knew Peter, I think, would have been particularly surprised at the passion in his actions. They would have made allowances for his combustible nature. And this occasion would have been no different. Upon hearing Jesus tell the disciples that his destiny was to suffer many things and to die in Jerusalem, Peter cannot abide the thought and jumps up and takes Jesus aside, maybe grabbing him a little bit roughly and blocking his way. Be it far from thee, Lord, he cries. May God be merciful to you. This cannot happen to you. It's typical Peter behavior, and there's something very endearing about it, I think. It seems clear that Peter acts out of his love for his friend and master, that he does not want his friend to suffer and die. He doesn't want to lose his beloved master, especially now that he has recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and it must have seemed to him that Jesus would carry all before him. Especially now, he cannot bear the thought of his master dying, and he does not want to lose his dear friend. So I ask again, why does Jesus react so strongly to Peter? If it is love for his friend and master that motivates Peter, what Jesus says in response makes it plain that another kind of love is at play in his own actions. And the love active in Jesus' actions is none other than the self-giving love of God, the love which moves the sun and other stars, the love that is the very life of the Holy Trinity, the love that overflows in the work of creation and now comes forth in the work of redemption, the love of God that sends the Son into the world to save sinners, the love with which Christ Jesus gives himself entirely over to the will of his Father and offers himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, the love that will be poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself now, but the point is that this is the love that leads Jesus to the cross, and Peter's love stands opposed to it. Peter is determined to save his master 
from suffering and death. But the Lord is determined to pour out his life in order to save the world from sin. And so Peter stands both literally and figuratively in the way of the Lord, blocking the way of the cross. And this, I think, is why Jesus reacts so strongly against Peter, even calling him Satan. You see, the title Satan means adversary, that is, one who opposes or obstructs. The devil himself is rightly called Satan because he is the adversary par excellence, implacably opposed to the loving purposes of God. But in standing in Jesus' way, Peter has, albeit unwittingly, acted satanically, in the sense that he too now stands opposed to the Lord's work of redemption. And Peter, despite his good intentions, has acted the part of the devil. This is why Christ so strongly rebuffs him, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. Those are strong words, to be sure, but they are necessary. Listen to how one monastic commentator puts it. Jesus, he says, came among us not primarily to establish easygoing human fellowship, the sort that produces warm feelings of acceptance and belonging. He came among us to redeem us from sin, an operation that cannot avoid inflicting pain. Friendship and the truth, he says, means never forgetting the ultimate goal of our life by basking in the enjoyable illusion of present security and mutual human support. Jesus can support us as our friend only insofar as his help moves our life toward his Father. The sin cannot collude with us in anything even vaguely approaching a conspiracy against the Father's deepest will to save. If he did, he would stop being the beloved and faithful Son, which is exactly what the actual Satan would have had him do during the temptations in the wilderness. These words make me wonder, in what ways am I like Peter? Are there areas in my life that stand opposed to God's loving purposes, whether in my thoughts or in my words or in my actions? And to what extent do I, like Peter, think I know better than the Lord? Do I spend more time and effort telling him what is best rather than listening to his direction? How far am I really willing to go to allow Jesus to change me, to turn me around and draw me out into the deep where I cannot swim, out into the depths of the Father? Might he need to say to me what he says to Peter? But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, a stumbling block. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That phrase, Thou savorest not the things that be of God, 
It's one of those phrases in the King James Version that has become a bit archaic. It is, though, a deft translation, because I think it captures a sense of a Greek word that is not easy to render into English. Where literally the Greek text reads, you think not the things of God, or something like, you are not looking at things like God does. That is, Jesus is saying to Peter that he is not thinking God's thoughts, not sharing God's outlook or mindset, or you might even say God's values. And you could even say that Peter does not delight in or enjoy what God does. And this is the sense that savor captures. Thou savorest not the things that be of God means that Peter, quite simply, does not love what God loves. To use the language of our epistle, Jesus is saying that Peter remains conformed to this world and needs to be transformed by the renewing of his mind. Only through such a transformation, such a metamorphosis, will Peter come to love and savor the things that God does. Such an inward change will occur only insofar as Peter is conformed to the life of Jesus, only insofar as he resolutely rejects old habits of thought and learns to love the things God loves and humbles himself to follow Christ in the way of the cross. And the same goes for you and for me. If any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. St. Paul expresses the same summons in different terms when he writes, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Both of these images are quite radical. Taking up your cross, offering yourself as a sacrifice, both involve the death of the self. As such, they are images of an irrevocable self-abandonment, a gift of oneself so complete that nothing remains behind and nothing can be taken back. And it makes me wonder what would elicit such a self-oblation. There's a scene in one of C.S. Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia which gives us an idea of what might call forth such an irrevocable making over of the self to God. The scene involves a character whose name is Quinn. Quinn is a talking horse, which is not all that usual, unusual in Narnia, as there are many talking animals there. And in the book, Quinn has been traveling with another talking horse and two human children, a boy and a girl, across a desert. Near the end of their journey, they take refuge in a walled hermitage after having been pursued by lions. Several days after that ordeal, Quinn and the girl are talking in the courtyard of the hermitage when, as Lewis writes, they saw an enormous lion 
leap up from outside and balance itself on top of the green wall. Only it was a brighter yellow and was bigger and more beautiful and more alarming than any lion they had ever seen. And at once it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching them. Quinn and the child stood frozen with open mouths and staring eyes. And Lewis writes, there was about a second of intense silence. Then Huynh, though shaking all over, gave a little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. It soon becomes clear that this beautiful and alarming lion is none other than Aslan, the Christ figure in Lewis's books. And this is how he responds to Quinn. Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose, I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. Quinn's response to Aslan gives us a picture of what it looks like to be so drawn to the Lord Jesus that we would choose to give ourselves entirely over to him. You are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And Aslan's words suggest that what we find when we offer ourselves souls and bodies in the same way to the Lord Jesus is nothing other than joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.